Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance kept in heaven for you that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Even though now you've gone through all kinds of trials, these have come to purify your faith so that your faith being more genuine than gold that is tested by the fire may result in the glory and honor and praise of our Lord Jesus Christ on the day when he is finally revealed. Even though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you cannot see him now, you still believe in him, don't you? And you rejoice with an indescribable joy. Why? Because you are even now receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I thought I was saved. You're getting there. Isn't that good news? Last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about women who got up and went to the tomb early in the morning. And from Matthew 28, it says that when they got to the tomb, they looked on the stone was an angel. And the angel said to them, tell the disciples that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. When the women turned to leave, they ran into Jesus himself, though they did not know it was him. And he said exactly the same thing. He said, tell my brothers that I am going ahead of them into Galilee. There they will see me. When you finish that story, you can't wait for the reunion. That is going to be one knockdown party. But when you read further in Matthew 28, you're left with this bad taste in your mouth because it says in verse 16 and 17 that the 11 disciples then went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped. But some doubted. That's a hard verse because you wonder, don't you, how can you be looking at the one who has just come back from the dead and doubt this? I mean, what kind of evidence do you need? How can you look at the same evidence that other people are worshiping and you have doubts? What is it going to take? The, the, the verse pits worship and doubt almost against each other. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Some say that a better translation is, when they saw him, they worshiped, but doubted some. So that tends to say that there aren't two kinds of people worshiping him that day. There's one kind of person in front of him, but two things are happening. One of them is worship and the other one is doubt. 
So it's not two different classes of people. It's two different states of mind in one person. When they saw him, they worshipped but doubted some. Now, let's give them a break. (laughs) And us. Because doubt in the Bible is not the refusal to believe something in spite of the evidence. It's not the refusal to believe something alongside of the evidence or for lack of evidence. More often in the Bible, doubt is a broad term. It can mean the refusal to believe something in spite of the evidence. It can mean that, but just as often, it means an ambivalence. It just means you can't get there. It, sometimes it's because of ignorance, and sometimes it's because of fear. Sometimes you haven't processed it yet. You haven't put everything together. You go into something expecting something, and then it doesn't happen, and that's called doubt. So you can't look at the disciples and say, how can you guys doubt when other people are worshiping because they didn't mean it. They didn't do it on purpose. That's not what the word always means. It doesn't mean you're a skeptic. Sometimes doubt is faith, looking for a reason to believe. But skepticism is doubt looking for a reason not to believe. These people are not looking for a reason not to believe. They're looking for a reason to believe, and it hasn't happened yet. And so, even while they worship, they doubt. I went reading through the Gospels, uh, again, the four Gospels, and I noticed um, after the resurrection, when Jesus came back from the dead, he revealed himself like 12 different times to all kinds of people. And they doubted. And I, I, I don't think, if you're, if you're the Spirit, you put that in the Bible unless you're trying to say something to people. You're trying to say, watch this. There's more happening than you think. So I started reading these stories. And here, I noticed a few things. I might take you by surprise. It certainly surprised me. One of them is that the ones who are doubting are almost always believers, not unbelievers. I mean, I would have thought it would have been Pilate or Herod or someone like the soldiers, perhaps. But it isn't that. The ones doubting are always religious people. Most often, Followers of Jesus. That's a big deal. Because it means you can follow someone and doubt them. You you can believe something and still have doubts. Some years ago, I was driving away from the rehearsal back to the hotel where I would spend the last night as an unmarried man. I had my friends around me, and we remember driving across the Blue Water Bridge and just between Port Huron and Sarnia, Canada, and cry, we crossed the bridge. I got quiet, and the friend next to me said, what, what do you, how come you're so quiet? I mean, I know that surprised you because I'm always quiet. And I, 
I said, nothing. I think I'm, think I'm doing okay. He said, you're having doubts, aren't you? I was ashamed to admit it. I thought, man, I love, I love that woman more than anyone in the world. In fact, I still love her more than anyone in the world. And yet here I am driving across the bridge thinking, man, I should be past this by now. Finally, he goes, dude, listen, man, you have nothing to worry about. Now, Lori, she has a lot to worry about, but you don't have anything to worry about. <laughs> he said, you know, besides, I mean, if something comes up, you guys love it. I mean, you'll work it out. It'll be okay, right? I said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But I had doubts, and it, it doesn't seem, but you know it's true. If you've bungee jumped or, or you've jumped out of an airplane, you know this is true, don't you? If you didn't believe, you wouldn't have jumped in the first place. But if you didn't have any doubts, you'd have never been scared. You'd have jumped and said, I know how this is going to end. But somewhere between them, you think, man, what if the dude who packed this shoe was drunk? <laughs> By the time you figure it out, you'll be looking at Jesus. And you, you know this. And so you say, what? Well, do you believe? Yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. <laughs> you, faith is not a verdict that you render once you have all the evidence and say, okay, I've heard the case. Now that I've heard everything, I believe. <laughs> I wish it were that easy. Faith is a bet. It's a gamble that you're putting down saying, you know, there are some possibilities, but my money's on this outcome, even though I'm not positively sure. Now, if you've been in the church a while, you're already mad. Hang on. But so the people, I mean, the people in our church right now, me, who have this deep-seated faith, we have doubts, but we've placed a bet. And the reason we have doubts is because like skydiving or like getting married, we have skin in the game. This is not some objective case where we go, oh, I guess I was wrong about that. If you were wrong about skydiving, you're dead. If you're wrong about marriage, you wish you were dead. So you have skin in the game. You with me? Which led to the other thing I noticed was that the people who doubted the disciples uh, never did it on purpose. It's like they were doubting before they could catch themselves. Something happened and they were just like, I doubt that. You know, you're like, oh, no, I'm supposed to believe, but I doubt that. And that's kind of the way it is. But see, what we've learned to do is we've learned to sort of lie about that. And see, well, it doesn't make sense to me, but you know, I am in church. So yes, I believe. But, but I mean, you can lie all you want. But if you have these deep-seated doubts, I think the first place... To start is just to say, I don't have a lot of control over that. If I, if I had control over believing something, I would simply believe it and move on. But I can't. I'm stuck. So you go into something with these high expectations, and then something else happens. You say, I know how the world works, and it doesn't happen that way. I know what's going to happen, but then it doesn't happen. And you look at it, and you go, that is not, there is a disconnect between what I was expecting and what actually happened. And the space in between the disconnect is the size of your doubt. Which led to the next thing I noticed. The evidence almost never overturns it. So if you doubt something 
and I try to convince you that it's true, I probably can't pay attention because doubt does not seem to respond to education. Incompetence does and ignorance does. But doubt is not a malfunction of the intellect. It's a virus of the soul. And so because you go into something, seeing it a certain way, even when we produce the evidence, you are likely to see even the evidence through the lens of doubt. Does that make sense? Because I'm having a ball and it makes a lot of sense to me. You put two guys rooting for opposite teams in front of the same instant replay and you'll see this. That was a strike three. Look at it. Now they're going to show the replay. They even put the box in there. And you look, and the two guys, see, I told you that was not a strike. And the other one will say, it might have nipped the corner as it went across the plate. So it doesn't matter how many times you look at it. The evidence doesn't overturn it because you look at even the evidence through what you were hoping to see or what you believed you would see in the first place. So there's no point sitting down and arguing with someone who has a ton of doubt because nothing you say is going to make them go, oh, I get that. See, when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, he had disciples next to him, right? Well, he's looking right at him. He's looking right at him, and they don't believe. Well, you say, well, he didn't recognize him. All right. Then he takes the scriptures, and he starts opening the scriptures from Moses and the prophets. Let me get this straight. He's got his Bible out. It's one of them big, heavy ones. He's your board, you can like, he's looking at Moses and he's going, look at that right there. See that? That's me. Now look at this in the prophets right there. See that? That's me. And you would think after explaining himself from the scriptures, they would go, ha, we got it. But evidence never overturns doubt. Comprehension does. You know something for a long time, and I'm telling you right now, a lot of you know a ton of stuff. Some of us, no, that's not true. All of us in this room, in this room, this is College Church. You guys, we are educated way beyond our level of obedience. We are educated way beyond stuff we comprehend. So what will happen is you'll know stuff and you'll know it your entire life and still doubt it if you have the guts to admit it. And then someday it'll pop. And it will seem to you like you learned it for the first time. You didn't learn anything. It was always there. You just couldn't put it together. And so while the disciples are walking with Jesus and he's 
putting it together, they're still not getting it because he's the one putting it together. And then it says later on, when he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and they recognized him. And they said, that's when it happened right there. Now I'm sitting here reading this thinking, well, how on earth does breaking bread convince them of something that the Bible doesn't? You believe in the Bible or don't you? You see the problem. What happened is when he breaks the bread, everything they'd heard converged into a flashpoint. And it exploded into a thing called faith. Then they saw him. Then they saw him. And that's when you're thinking, my goodness, what was I thinking? Which leads to the last thing I noticed. Hang on, we're almost done. Well, not really, but almost. Thank you. (laughs) Doubt never vanishes all at once. Here's what I've told you so far. The people who doubt are more often believers than unbelievers. But the doubt that we have as believers is not something we've earned or something we've tried to do. It's not a refusal to believe. It's almost a guttural response in spite of the evidence or alongside the evidence, and we just can't get there. You go, you know what? I'm just not there yet, man. And the best thing I can tell you is if you're in this place, and I think most of you are, just to admit it. Just go, I'm not there yet. Just start there, okay? So I've told you that. And then I've said, if that's where you are, more evidence isn't going to change your mind. Comprehension will change your mind. You need more time in the hopper, not the class. And then I've said, comprehension only happens slowly. It's like it seeps into you, and then you get it. Thomas, he's this guy who's bold. He's an outlier. All the disciples, you know, they follow Jesus. Thomas, he's out by himself one day, and he just goes... Not me. If I don't see the holes in his hands, I will not believe. Bam, he said it just like that. That dude has guts. Because all the other disciples are thinking, what's wrong? Shh, what's wrong with you? This is church. (laughs) And he's going, if I don't see it, I don't buy it. He's an outlier. But he's an outlier because he's better than the other disciples, not worse. Because the truth is, they didn't believe either. Only they didn't admit it. He did. He just said, I don't believe it, and these are my terms. And then watch this. Jesus comes into the room and says, Thomas, calls him by name. Thomas, put your finger in the hole. Thomas had to think to himself, I could have swore you weren't here a week ago. Put your finger in the hole. Now watch this. Thomas went to put his finger in the hole and he couldn't stop himself. He went right over frontward and he said, my Lord and my God. He went from zero to 60, just like that. Everybody else has to warm up. That's why he's an outlier. Because all the other disciples, they didn't believe either. They got themselves there inch by inch. Thomas went from nothing to worship. Just like that. 
Jesus talking to Peter and says, one day I will be crucified and on the third day rise again. Peter says, I doubt that. If you are the son of God, I doubt that. And did I say he was walking with Jesus a year and a half when that happened? And then at the end, just a few hours before he was led away, please don't get lost in the story. Listen to this in John chapter 16. A few hours before he is led away, Jesus is in an upper room talking to his disciples about what will happen in the last time of his life. And in John chapter 16, this is what his disciples said. They said, ah, now you are making sense. Now you're not speaking in all of those parables. That's what they said. Now we believe that you came from God. And Jesus said to them, do you now believe? And did I say they were walking with Jesus three years? He'd not said anything in that room. He did not say somewhere before. And they still hadn't got there. Thomas is better than you thought, not worse. So let me go back to this again. You start with that story. So I'm reading through the Gospels. I'm looking for doubt because it says in Mark 16 that when the women came back and told the men, the disciples did not believe them. And when the guys walking on the road to Emmaus came back and told the disciples, the disciples did not believe them. Mark 16, 10 and 11, if you're keeping score. So I'm reading through the Gospels looking for places where the disciples did not believe him, where they doubted. And here's the problem. I couldn't find it. I can't find a disciple outside of Thomas who stands up and says, I don't believe that. So I start looking for the symptoms of doubt, and they're all over. Here's why this is important to us. Because I think most of you have just enough faith to tell yourself you believe but you do not have enough faith yet to be whole. I believe that most of you are not plagued by doubt, but I believe you are living in the shadow of a doubt. It's this long hangover. It's the effect or the symptoms of doubt. So, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, some of you are sad and overwhelmed and discouraged at some news that has just come into your life. And you would say, no, no, my problem is that I am discouraged. But when Jesus shows up, you discover it's doubt. He doesn't say, oh, you poor broken heart. He says, that's doubt looking like discouragement. The women, they run from the tomb and they're afraid, and they say nothing to anyone, and that's where some of you are. You're Christians. You've been a Christian your entire life, have not talked about your faith in a hostile environment for as long as you've been alive. You're hedging your bets. You call it wisdom. Call it shrewd. Maybe you call it fear. Jesus says it's doubt. Because if he's alive, that hostile environment is the least of your problems. 
You see it? That changes everything, people. So you get to this story where we read a few moments ago, and you read it differently when you read it like this. You're not looking for people that suddenly jump from full head of doubt all the way into a full heart of belief. You're, you're, you're watching people warm up to the idea that Jesus is alive. And, and I think this is right where some of us are this morning. I'll tell you why. If you go back to the story, you notice that when they heard Jesus was alive, Peter and John went out on a foot race to get over to the tomb to check it out. Pause for a moment. you got to soak in this because they are not going to look at a place. They're looking at an event. The resurrection did not start with Jesus. The resurrection did not happen to Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection. He does not say, I will rise again. He says that, but he says, I am the resurrection. When you're in me, you are in resurrection. Resurrection is an event. It's an epic. It's the beginning of a whole new era to the world. So when you see disciples running from their house one morning over to the tomb, you don't picture disciples just running to say, well, I wonder if the body's there or not there. You're picturing disciples on a foot race headed towards the resurrection. (laughs) When they got there, John outran them. So he got there first. So he ran up to the door and he looked inside, but he did not go in. He looked in, he saw the linens lying there, but he did not go in. Peter was never one plagued by that kind of doubt. And so the moment he never saw a risk he didn't like. So he got up to the door, pushed right past John, barges into the empty tomb, sees the same thing John has seen, plus he saw the wrapping on the head folded neatly and laid aside. And he must have been thinking to himself, who would steal a body and bother to fold up the wrappings? Who'd unwrap the carcass in the first place? You don't do that. Why are the wrappings here? Maybe he's alive. But he does not believe. John finally mans up and steps into the tomb And here's what it says in John chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. He saw the linens and he believed. But he did not yet understand the scriptures. Let me see if I got this right. We got one guy runs up to the tomb. He looks in, but he does not go in. We got somebody else who goes in, but he does not believe. And then we got somebody else who goes in and believes, but he does not yet understand. Am I tracking this right? 
So it's, it's, this isn't about a foot race. Who got to the tomb first? Who cares? This is about the evolution of faith. I think we have people right here who have come up to the tomb and they have looked in and they have seen the linens and they can argue beyond any doubt that the body is not there. I did the whole Josh McDowell, Ravi Zacharias, C.S. Lewis track where we can prove intellectually that the body is not there and yet you do not believe. It has not yet seized your soul. You somehow believe that Jesus is alive, but it has not yet taken hold of you. Do you see it? There's a ton of us. Because I'm telling you, education is not the key to believing. Now, I know some of you are good because I don't like education. Stay in school. <laughs> Get educated. I'm just telling you, if you're waiting for a silver bullet argument where all of a sudden you get it, it does not exist. Because this room has people in it who know all those arguments, but they're not much further along in their faith than you are. You will not find the evidence in all of the evidence. It takes something more than knowledge. Not less. You don't go, well, I'll just believe. Use Garrus. You need to get educated. And you need to value education. You just need to realize that isn't the thing that will get you all the way in the tomb. It takes comprehension to get you in that tomb. Because there is a moment later when Peter walks into the tomb and he believes, or John walks into the tomb and he believes, but he, he still, I, he doesn't understand. I, like Christians today who would say, yeah, Jesus is alive and because Jesus is alive, my sins are forgiven and because Jesus is alive, someday we will live again too. They believe, but they do not yet understand I think the genius of this story is Peter. The last time you saw Peter, Peter was standing inside the tomb looking at the evidence, but he couldn't put it together. There is no place in John chapter 20 where it says Peter finally believed. Poor guy. He just gets left there. John is inside having a Pentecostal meeting, and right next to him is Peter still looking at it. He don't get it. And then one day it dawns on him. Listen to this. I think Peter sits inside the tomb and looking out through the open door. He sees a world that is entirely different than the one he left in order to come into the tomb. 
He came out of one world, stood inside the tomb. He didn't get it. And then one day it dawned on him. And he got it. And when he turned around, he looked out that same door he came in. And lo and behold, everything was affected by the resurrection. It wasn't just life to come. It was everything that happens in my life is part of the resurrection. I don't think most of us have gotten there. So, so, so my word to us this morning is, now that we all believe in the resurrection, it's time to enter it. It's time to get inside and stop confining the power of the resurrection to just those things in the future or a raised corpse. You know why I think this? Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, this is what Peter says as he looks out through that hole where the door used to be. He looks out and says, praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope, wait for it, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who are yourselves, even now being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is just about ready to be revealed in the last day. He didn't get this until he got inside. He looked out and said, Lo and behold, this changes everything. I'm a person of hope. And so he goes on in 1 Peter 1, and he says, Even though some of you are in the middle of trials that are hard, grievous trials, he says, I want you to know that your faith is being tested so that like gold that is tested by the fire, it will be proved more genuine, and your faith will result in the glory and the honor and the praise on the day when Jesus Christ is finally revealed. And there was one more thing. As I look out through that hole... Even though I have not seen him, I love him. And even though I cannot see him now, I believe in him. And I am exploding with an indescribable joy. And why? Because I am receiving the end of my faith, the salvation of my soul. You don't get that in church. You don't get it in class. It doesn't come in a Bible study. It comes when all of those things converge and you start to see it. Man, I have prayed this week for us, church. Man, I've prayed this week. Because I think some of us have been Christians for too long. We think we know this stuff. It is better to get inside and say, I don't know anything, and to see the world through the lens of the resurrection. You'll be surprised what is happening that you haven't seen. You'll be surprised what is true that you still don't know, and you'll never see it unless you enter the resurrection. We need to get inside of the resurrection. I know some of you right now are looking, thinking, man, you can get all up in a lather about this. You will too someday. You 
you do not believe in this stuff. And then order a pizza. This is bigger than life. This is all of life. This is not something that matters too. This is the only thing that matters. And everything else fits inside of this. You are people of hope and you are people of joy. I have doubts. I'm like you. I have doubts. Not all the time and not all about the same thing, but I have them. I go into something and I want something and then something else happens. And it's almost like I am being asked, my faith is being asked to carry something that it cannot carry. The weight is too much. And you think to yourself, I can't do this. You know, your knees start to wobble and you start to shake a little bit. You can't carry the weight. I doubt. And some of you do. I know you do. Because you have things that you wanted too and you didn't get them. And some of you grew up in religious homes and you learned the whole doctrine before it ever occurred to you. Hasn't occurred to you yet. You've just learned things that we've taught you in church. We've done the best we can. But you understand, we can't take you there. So you grew up in religious homes, you read the Bible together, you learned a few verses, and you said, We're Christians. And you are. You believe in the resurrection, but you've not entered it. And so you still have this faith that's bequeathed to you, and as valuable as that is, it's not enough. So you sit in church, some of you, like I did, and you doubt. You don't say anything. This is church. But you doubt. There are claims that the Bible makes that it hasn't happened yet. And you look around you and you say, I don't believe that. But you don't say it. You just look and go, hmm. And you've asked for things that you did not get. There are claims that are made about Jesus that you cannot prove. And you are asked week after week to come in church and affirm this. And it must feel to some of you like hypocrisy. I assure you it is not. It is the way to faith. So I'm going to ask you today, in spite of all your doubts, well, first, I'm going to ask you to own them. Quit lying about them. Just say it's true. I don't have enough evidence, and evidence doesn't work anyway. I have doubts. God said this would happen to me, and it hasn't happened yet. You don't have to be angry about it or real bold and obnoxious, but if you could at least quietly just say, I'm not there yet. I can own that. You know what will happen, I think? The doubt itself will be the doorway for some of you. If you'll just say, I doubt it, it might lead you to a whole new life. So please, 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 please be honest with your doubts.